This is a Wild Gate Production Podcast. Welcome to the Crusader Podcast, a show about the Castles of Crusades role-playing game. Domo arigato, Mr. Abato. Chef Boyardee, Arthur Fonzarelli, the die is cast. Welcome everybody to the sixth installment of the Crusader Podcast. We've got a special guest here for you tonight, Mac Golden, one of the co-writers of Castles and Crusades. And he's here to tell us more about the Siege Engine and how he got started in gaming. So without further ado, let's go right to Mac. So Mac, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, as I've told you before, I'm a big fan of this podcast. So let's just hear a little bit of history about you. Um, how did you get into gaming, and how did that eventually lead to Castles and Crusades? Well, from what I recall, it was around 1982, which I think is about the same time Tyler started. That's right. Um, so good friends of mine um, said they had bought this new game that uh, was sweeping the country, of course, and that we were going to try to play it that weekend. And the the guy that was the DM um, was about three years older than the rest of us. He was the older brother, one of my friends. And he tried to explain it to us, and we had no clue what he was talking about. And finally, he, said, he went and he bought three copies of The Hobbit and gave it to us and said, read this. This is what the game's going to be like. And from that point forward, I was hooked. Now, it's kind of a treat that we have Matt Golden here with us on the Crusader podcast. You know, I've kind of been associated with various trolls since 03 and 05 and at different times when I was still uh, buying the game and going to conventions. And I've really only met Mac a couple of times myself. And a lot of people uh, out there that play Castles and Crusades and have for years are some of the old D20 third edition product. You may not even know Mac at all, but very instrumental in uh, the design of uh, Castles and Crusades. You said you kind of did your uh, gaming bit there in the in the 80s and whatnot with uh, D&D. And, of course, you go back pretty far with some of the trolls themselves, uh, Todd Gray and Stephen Chenault with some gaming at that time. Tell us a bit about that experience. Right. So um, after my initial group uh, had broken up um, and we moved on to other groups, uh, I kind of became the primary DM in my area. And um, over time, as you lose players, you know, uh, I started looking for new players, uh, so I started hanging up cards at the local game shop, local comic shops, things of that nature, and I met this wild character named Rodney. Well, it turns out Rodney worked at a local grocery store with Steve and Todd. He Somehow he found out that Steve gamed, and he harassed Steve until he agreed to start a new campaign, and they got Todd into it. Well, it's the way I understand it. After a couple of games, uh, Steve thought they needed a third player. So Rodney called me and asked me to join. And the rest is history, as they say. That was around, as I recall, it was around 1984, 1985. I'd have to, I'd have to actually go back and look at my character sheet, um, which my first character in Steve's game is Aristobulus, which is now, you know, obviously one of the gods in, in Aired, the Aired setting. Yeah, that's right. A big part of the uh, the lore and the uh, legends of, of Aired, no doubt. Uh, you know, you guys uh, played back then, uh, Todd and Steve, kind of your uh, humble beginnings there in Arkansas, along before designing uh, CNC. Did you, uh, after high school even, kind of continue on fairly uh, regularly with gaming and whatnot? Oh, yeah. we never. I've never stopped gaming. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, when when Steve left and uh, joined the Army, he went, he went overseas to Hawaii. Uh, I took over our main game. Uh, we still game every Thursday night um, unless something uh, comes up and prevents the game. We even still go back and play that old game uh, now and again. It's still running, uh, but we don't play that often. Uh, we have a different current campaign going right now. But game through high school, game through college, uh, on into law school, continued to game. And really the first origins of, of Trollor games for me, started back in law school. Uh, I had wanted to start a fanzine, and another one of the gamers in our group, Christian Harris, uh, was moving back to Arkansas, and um, I talked him into putting together a little uh, little one-page uh, fanzine, and we printed up a thousand copies. And that year, we went to Dragon Con in Atlanta. That was around 1996, and we passed those out. 
that that uh, kind of gave me the impetus to to continue on. And I think Steve has kind of told you the story that I kind of tricked him into forming the game company a little bit because I kept I kept harassing him about you know writing up some some adventures. And he had already made some submissions to a Dungeon back at the time and almost got a couple of them published. I can't remember the exact details, but uh, eventually I got him to agree to put together some uh, adventures and try to go to try to go to Gen Con, uh, if I recall correctly. And um, once I got him hooked, uh, and then Davis wanted to get in, uh, it just kind of kind of snowballed from there, and we started making contacts and uh, and we started learning the industry and. Um, if I recall correctly, we talked to one of the kind of sub-distributors back at the time, uh, Wizards Attic. We got them interested in what we were doing. If you Do, do any of you have any of those early products we put out? Um, the, the original versions of uh, the Mortality of Green, uh, the Aired Setting, uh, the Fantastic Adventure. This would have uh, been around 2000, right? Yeah, around 2000. Uh, in the back of those modules, there is what we called at the time the the sword and sorcery role playing game, mm-hmm. and and you will if you have a copy of those, and if you don't, I can I can try to find you a copy. If you have a copy of those, the the beginnings of CNC are in that little two to three page rule set. Uh, you'll find a lot of correlation, if not some of the exact same rules. I, I think uh, it would be very interesting and. Um... I think it would be a service to the uh, Castles and Crusades community to be able to get a copy of those rules scanned in. Just because I think that's so interesting. I, I remember Steve talking about it when we talked to him. Almost like an archaeological dig on the, the, the beginnings of CNC. I think that would be really nice. Yeah, I'm sure we can, we can dig out some of those copies. I'll talk to Steve and see if we can get him to uh, upload those as free uh, PDFs on the Trollord site or... Or a drive-through, or somewhere like that. Me and Davis put those rules together, basically because back then um, that was before uh, the SRD. Right. So we wanted to have a basis for our system because at that time we could not we could not just straight up say, hey, you know, we're writing D and D modules. So we wrote this little sword and sorcery role-playing game. It has some of the same philosophy and, like I said, some of the exact same rules that they eventually made it into C and C. Me and Davis put that together, um, and then of course. It wasn't long after we got going and we got picked up by distributors after our first Gen Con that the whole uh, D20 movements got started uh, with the SRD. I joined in on those um, those old discussions. They were they were run by Ryan Dancy at Watsi. Uh, he was kind of the the impetus behind that whole movement. Yeah, and you know all of those are all those early D20 publishers uh, were all in on that, those discussions and we got in on the ground floor kind of. So getting to the creation of CNC, um, so I think we started TLG in 2000. Approaching the second year, I believe it was, I ended up I had to I had to leave the company for for other reasons, and I dropped out for a while from being involved. And uh, about a year later, um, I don't remember now why, but I think I think there had been a downturn in D20, or they were coming out with the new with the second version, the SRD. Or there were some there were some changes in the industry. I really don't know. I can't remember, but Steve might be able to recall. And him and Davis started talking to me about they were playing around with coming up with their own rule set. And Davis had a long, a long standing rule set he had been working on that's very very detailed and um, uh, with a lot of options. It's almost more of a I would say it's kind of more of a role master type. Um, that's the most comparable thing I can I can think of. Wow. Um, so, you know, he had been wanting to do his own system and a little bit more hardcore system uh, for for years. Where whereas I had always wanted to do I wanted to do a simpler a simpler system with a unified mechanic. Um. So, I asked them if they want if I could join in, and and they said yes. And me and Davis basically started creating the game. Um, that came to be known as CNC. The way that worked was basically me and Davis wrote the rules uh, and discussed the rules. Uh, Steve kind of acted as a as a producer, I guess would be the most comparable uh, aspect, and also 
an, an arbiter of, of what would go in and what would go out because me and Davis were involved in it every day. We lived at that time, we lived right across the street from each other. And, uh, probably every night about nine to nine thirty, uh, we'd meet on my front porch and start hashing out the rules and, and writing things. Um, and we probably worked from, I'd say nine, nine to one every day for however long it was. I don't recall. Um, so we became so enmeshed in it. Steve kind of was the arbiter, uh, and, uh, would kind of direct about what he thought needed to be in, what he thought needed to be out and what would be best business wise. Uh, the one thing that we all agreed on was we wanted a, a simple system that you can make a character in t 10, 15 minutes and that would emphasize story and narrative over throwing the dice. Um, as you recall back that time, unless I'm, unless I'm mistaken, the whole role playing versus role playing, uh, debate was going on of course that had been going on for years right um, it still uh, is and, <laughs> and honestly die. yeah honestly to me the um, the d20 had already kind of started to devolve into more of the uh, rolling the dice aspect the more of the uh, tactical aspect the proliferation of, of skills and all that stuff um, min maxing that, exactly and what we wanted to do was make a game that that we liked to play um, that was simple to play. That was simple for people to pick up and that honestly Steve could sell to, to keep troller going. Um, so we made the game we wanted to play. That's, that's how it came about. Mac, how many uh, different adventures did you write for either D 20 and uh, some of them went into troller games, I guess as well. I know you have a fantastic adventure. I've got my CNC copy of it that came out in the uh, later years. Yeah, honestly, I, I didn't write many of the adventures. I, I wrote the Fantastic Adventure. That's actually based on a short story that Steve Steve wrote. And um, my main, uh, my in the early days, uh, my main role was editing and um, uh, a lot of the business side uh, I was involved in um, and kind of the direction of the company um, as far as before CNC came about. Um, uh, once, um, once I left the company, but then I, I came back to help write CNC. Then I was mainly writing writing the rules uh, of the player's handbook with Davis. Dave is really not credited to the extent he should have been on the player's handbook. He gave me and Davis title credit, the author credit, because we did write most of the rules. But a lot of what I would call the flavor text or the narrative section, um, Steve actually wrote. Uh, he really should be the third author on the book, in my opinion. That's right. I remember him at different times saying that he kind of wrote the in-between bits, uh, you know, and I said, oh, that's why it's so verbose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was I actually wrote down some just some notes for myself, uh, like I was telling Jesse before. Uh, I wrote down some notes for myself, just some things I wanted to go over about the scene engine and, and, and the philosophy of the game and things of that nature. And um, today when I was just sitting around. And then uh, before we got on here, I went back and, and read the, the Castle Keeper section of, of the Player's Handbook, which that, that section primarily was written by Steve. And surprisingly and honestly, almost everything I wrote down on my piece of paper today that I, is, is written in this section, um, which shows you things really, really have not changed. I, I did not remember um, I mean, almost word for word, um, some of the, the original ideas we wrote down uh, in creating the game, um, Steve used in, the, in that section. To me, that's really the most important section of the entire game, uh, is that Castle Keeper section in the Player's Handbook. And that very first page um, in the front of the Player's Handbook, that, that introduces the, the attribute checks, of course. So, Mac, talking about the Siege Engine, you said that you wanted to get to a unified mechanic. Was the Siege Engine your answer... To that unified mechanic? Um, yeah. At the time, we didn't call it the Siege Engine. Actually, the Siege Engine is like the, the name. That was the, the last thing we came up with uh, in, in, in writing the rules, to be honest. We didn't really have a name for it. That was more for a, a marketing and legal uh, uh, reasons, to be honest, uh, and something that the trailer could use and hang their hat on. But we, I, I really wanted a, a unified, logical mechanic because... 
uh, just by my nature, I guess, my personality. The one thing that drove me crazy about AD&D was uh, we all love Gary, but some of his rule sets, they, they were not coherent. They did not mesh in any way whatsoever, uh, and that drove me crazy uh, uh, just as, as a game system. And uh, so I, I wanted to come up with something that was easy and logical and unified, and that meshed with what Davis had already been working on uh, with his with his rules that he had been writing. At the same time, we wanted to stay true to the uh, the history of the game. That's where the twelve eighteen came from. We played around with with having a a Thaco type um, system at one point, uh, but it never really worked for me and Davis. Uh, the whole twelve eighteen came about. As you know, with with the original three D eighteen attributes, uh, the working in the, working in threes or, or multiples of six, etc., has always been tied into the game. Um, so and that's where where that came about. Um, I know there's a lot of I don't want to say controversy, but there's a lot of arguments out there in C and C about uh, is the twelve eighteen um, too hard? Uh, is it make it too, too difficult on characters? Well. We tried to make it as close as to the original game as possible, but we probably did dial it up a notch as far as difficulty on making the attribute check. But that's the way we play. We like our games to be difficult. I think I think it's pretty clear in the books though that by using that type of those multiples of three, you can adjust it however you want. You can make it a twelve fifteen. You can make it a nine fifteen. Uh, some people just use a base fifteen and you know add five or add six. The whole point was to create a rule system easily adaptable for anyone um, to the type of game that they wanted to play. But in the end, uh, it's the narrative and the story you're telling uh, as a group um, that should win the day, not not being um, beholden to anyone, anyone rule in the game. I have a question. Could you um, talk a little bit about the decision to change saving throws to correlate with ability rolls and why that decision was made and, and your thought processes on that? By going with a unified system, tying the attribute system to the saving throws uh, it just, just made sense to me. Um, and I, we may have even uh, taken, um, I think there's some other uh, games out there that, that, that have done similar in the past. Uh, honestly, what I wanted to do was I wanted to have a unified one to use the siege engine, which is what it's called now. I wanted it for combat too, and um, we never could. I mean, we never could work it out to anyone's liking. Uh, I'm still working on those on that. Um, I may be letting the cat out of the bag if if I could get the rules completed by next year for the 15th anniversary. Uh, the player's handbook's gonna be republished with a alternative combat system in the back. That's based on the siege engine, uh, which will finally totally unify the rule set. Wow! Yeah, that's uh, quite a, quite a revelation. Uh, yeah, you know, sometimes <laughs> when people you know play initially, uh, newer players that I've had come to CNC, they may ask. It doesn't get you know repeated much, but occasionally at first, somebody will say, "Oh, do I add level to the combat role?" I, I don't know that it causes any major problems to have it just be the bonus to hit and the various strength or dexterity modifiers that would go into the uh, character class bonus to hit, but yeah, that, that that would certainly uh, be something. I you know I don't think I'd be opposed to it. Although I don't find how it currently is uh, terribly difficult either. Even though you don't add your level to the combat rolls, you do add level to combat rolls if you're a fighter. And I actually, right. I actually take the base attack bonus and apply that to the siege engine when I run the game because okay. my thought process is the base attack bonus is shows the level of fighting skill of each class. So I, correct. I can take that and apply it to what would be the level of picking a lock skill of each class. Obviously, Thief would be plus level, but if a fighter wanted to try it, where would he land on that scale? Gotcha. Which correlates with the base attack bonus. So they're not completely separated, is my point. There is kind of the siege engine for fighting if you're a fighter. <laughs> Yes, yes, I agree. That works into to what we've been working on, and we've played as a couple instances of the of the combat rules, but they they they've broken down, and there's there's some little technicalities that they break down. So, uh, fingers sure. crossed, we'll get that worked out before next year. But uh, but like you said, Tyler, the it's it's not broken. It's just something that's bothered me for all these years. Right, and I know they have tinkered with a few things as far as alternate rules where I believe it was Davis that did the uh, one-page rules 
an adventurer's backpack alternate uh unarmed combat rules i think it's something that steven wanted not that the ones in the player's handbook were terribly uh convoluted or anything as, as it relates to grapple and some of those things but uh, yeah, uh, the the unarmed the, the original unarmed combat rule. Uh, that's the one thing we all three disagreed on. We all had three different ways we wanted to do it, and it was probably the last section written. As a matter of fact, I think Davis snuck in the night before it went to print and changed some of the rules on the unarmed combat because we had such disagreement over it. Uh, to this day, I don't remember why we argued so much about it, uh, but we could not come to an agreement. And uh, but I do remember we got the proofs back from the printer that. Me and Steve found um, some things that Davids had snuck into the rules uh, the, <laughs> night before, the night before we sent it off. So That sounds like Davis, yeah. <laughs> no surprise. <laughs> I, think, I, think those, uh, I think that may be one of the sections that's actually changed over the years. Uh, uh, because, you know, as you know, we, Steve tries not, and one of the original ideas was uh, we're not going to be issuing all these different editions of the rules. It, it's supposed to stay the same over time. Yeah, and I think they've done a pretty good job overall outside of uh, when you guys added poison rules in or a little of this or a little of that. And I, and, and I guess fourth printing uh, player's handbook changes were the biggest when Jim Ward was with the company uh, uh, on a regular basis that time with the illusion spells and the overhaul of the Barbarian. That was the most significant. And then maybe right. encumbrance changed a couple of times, uh, once or twice at least. Right. I think the original encumbrance rules were written by, by Davis. Um and uh, I think uh, those come out of his rule set that he had been writing. I've never been, I've never been a big uh, encumbrance Nazi, uh, uh, really. Um, but uh, uh, back in the day, Steve used to, back in the day, Steve used to make us uh, figure up our encumbrance in the old AD&D rules uh, to, the, to the T. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was a real stickler for it. Um, and Davis is Davis is that way as well. Uh, I don't have ever played one of Davis's games. It's it's super realistic. It's super tough, and um, probably has a a character survival rate of about fifteen percent. I would say. So a little more survivable than a Jim Ward game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't say that about old Jim. Uh, he he doesn't kill characters. The players kill themselves through poor decisions. <laughs> I just had to say that, or, you know, Jim's very particular about that. You know, he, uh, he doesn't kill the characters. Uh, one thing that I think uh, Castle and Crusades does so well is it looks at all the other versions of the fantasy game and it creates its own batch of cookies pulling from everywhere. When you were designing it and looking at the previous versions and, and knowing you were working with the, the SRD, what was the thought process in pulling what from where? Well, that's that's nice of you to say. That's actually that was part of the part of the intent was to try to pull from all versions of the game uh, because there there are fans of each one of them, uh, and we want again we want to create a unified system that people could adapt uh, no matter which which version they were using. So if they wanted to use a basic module or they wanted to use a second edition module. Or even go back to the 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 older books before then, or tunnels and trolls, anything they wanted to use, uh, we wanted them to be able to adapt it on the fly, easily. Steve is an AD and D fan. I tend more toward the basic expert rules, and Davis even goes back to the rules before that, whatever you want to call them, the white box or whatever. You kind of had your champions of each subset uh, among us as we created it, and that kind of worked its way into the game. For example, I think if you look at the Fantastic Adventure that I wrote, I think most people would probably say who have a, a knowledge of the history of the game, it could very well be um, an old B module. Uh, whereas if you look at uh, if you look at Davis's um, Davis's series of modules, Vakund, and those that can continue totally different style, of course. And of course, those are now compiled in the uh, Death in the Trekland, uh, perfect bound soft cover that Troll Lord puts out, uh, the Vakun and so forth. Right, they're they're excellent. Uh, one other quick question, just before the uh, the Siege Engine discussion in full, uh, you still have contributed some over the years, and and I understand uh, putting it in um, uh, more recently, I guess, uh, with uh, the latest product, the Adventurer's Backpack. You had a contribution or two there as well. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, actually, I'm like I said. I think 
I think we started talking about the Avengers backpack at least 10 years ago that I, that I recall. Um, and, and Steve's kept it going over all these years. Um, when, when it looked like it was finally going to come to fruition and that, um, that Steve was going to put some new classes in or decide to put new classes in. Um, I basically, I wanted in on that writing the classes, uh, is if not my favorite it's one of my favorite things to do is write the classes so uh, i helped contribute to the classes um and that was i think those were some of those were first published in the uh what was that little box set he did i can't remember what it was called now it had the, had oh, the, the archer the black box set, the 10th the, anniversary set yeah right um i helped contribute on some of those and then when he said he was going to take some of those and expand out uh, i helped contribute to the classes in the adventurer's backpack and you had a hand in the thief for sure, I believe, right? Yeah, I wrote the thief because um, going back to my original character was uh, a hobbit, a uh, halfling thief, and uh, I wanted the I wanted the thief um, to kind of be in there. I was never really satisfied with the rogue, but that's what we had to work with, and that was what kind of the zeitgeist of the day was. I wanted a more of an older thief. Uh, actually, I think if I recall, I think the original draft of of the C and C classes. Um, I think there was 18 or 19 original classes that me and Davis uh, came up with. And I think there was three different thief classes, three thief-type classes, um, not including the assassin. But in the end, we decided that that was probably just they were kind of superfluous. So we just kept with the more general rogue. Did you kind of take elements of each of those and kind of just pour it all into one, essentially, and then in the confines of the third edition of the fantasy game as well? Right, because um, um, because what we we're trying to go for is we we're going for archetypes, and um, really, when we were looking at it, we had some classes that overlapped and kind of uh, kind of went away from the archetype idea because um, they're kind of eating their own, I guess. So we we just kind of cut those out and dialed it back to, to the general rogue that, uh, that everyone's familiar with, really, but. So when we had the opportunity to do the adventures backpack, uh, I wanted to try to get get a, uh, a thief in there that had a slightly different tone. All right, Max, we've heard time and time again from our listeners that they wanted a more in-depth look at the Siege Engine. And I thought that the best way to do that would be to have one of the writers of the Siege Engine here with us to go over it. Could you just give us the elevator pitch of, of what the Siege Engine is for those of us who may be new to the game or just need a little refresher? Well, I'll try. Um, uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not sure I'm even the best to give you this pitch, but uh, but I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll give it a whirl. Uh, again, the the whole idea of CNC is to uh, have a mechanic that serves the, the story that you're trying to tell, and the narrative should win out over everything else. The Siege Engine, of course, is uh, is an attribute check based system. Again, in creating the game, we wanted it to be where every class and every race uh, had an equalized playing field, and we did not want where um, uh, you would have some of the uh, the min-max type uh, racial classes, if you will, uh, that have become prevalent. Uh, everyone's playing an elf because they can min-max, etc. So uh, that's, for example, that's why the humans get the three attributes and the demi-humans get two. So the, the Sage in itself, of course, is an attribute check-based system uh, based on a 1218 uh, mechanic where the, the, primes, the prime attributes of the character uh, have a base of 12 and the secondary attributes of the character have a base of 18. That's the challenge base. Upon that, the, the CK will add a challenge level based upon the difficulty of the action that you're, you're trying to, to complete and that equals out your challenge class, which correlates, of course, to armor class uh, uh, along those lines. And when you roll the d20 with all your with your level bonus, any attribute check bonuses, any uh, magical bonuses that you have, you have to get equal to or higher than uh, the challenge class. That may be the poorest description of the siege engine you've ever heard. Actually, <laughs> I think it's. Fun. <laughs> so basically, the siege engine is used for. When a character tries to do something that's not necessarily uh, swinging to hit in combat or casting a spell or something of that nature, it's more to resolve something, um, some other sort of challenge, such it's, as it's, swimming it's, across it's, a river 
something like that, correct? Yes. Yeah, so uh, it, the Sejin is there to to resolve a conflict or a challenge within the game that the character is trying to attempt. And the main thing that you have to remember um, that sometimes people do forget is it's not for every action the character is trying to attempt. It's for difficult things that the character is trying to attempt. Um, there are various sections throughout the book you'll find we try to make clear that, um, for example, if you have a thief that's trying to climb a rope, he should be able to climb the rope unless there's some something that's uh, something about it that's unique or special that would prevent him from doing so. If if a ranger's trying to scale a cliff, he can scale it. Every action doesn't require a rope. Uh, if if it fits the story, the character should be able to do it if it's within their class. However, for example, if you have if you have a strong fighter, he can't just he can't go along and just knock over every door or push over every statue um although there some, should be some that he should have no difficulty doing so uh, but when the ck uh, puts puts before you a challenge that uh, is difficult and requires um to me almost some sort of heroic action that's that's when the siege engine the attribute check system comes into play you touched earlier on um that you had received criticism that uh siege engine can be too tough on characters and really, I mean, it's it's in bold here in the book. It says, determine if a check is necessary. And it says it's important to note that only activities that have a significant chance of failure should have rolls. So really, yeah. every time that your character is, is rolling, it should be for something that's important. So it should be challenging. Exactly. But I think, I think a lot of that comes from people who uh, played um, third edition where the uh, the spot checks, the the listen checks, the hide checks, search checks, uh, they just seemed to proliferate and um, became dominant and almost overbearing on the actual role playing itself. And uh, people started thinking that you had to roll a listen check or a search check for everything. And that, that was one of the things we were trying to get away from. Yeah, because yeah, some things you're obviously going to see if it's close enough to you and maybe semi sort of out in the open or things that you might hear just because you're, you're right next to something. Or there, uh, we could also point out, too, that there might be times you might need to roll for something perhaps a bit mundane if you were to be in combat at the time. Right. Exactly. So people think it's too hard because they think they got to roll an 18 to climb a ladder. <laughs> <laughs> when, in fact, they should just, they just climb the ladder. Just so. climb the ladder. Yeah, I'm fully in support of not rolling the dice more than rolling the dice. My whole family games, and my sister says if she has to roll a die, she feels like she's already lost the game. <laughs> the The goal should be to be so sure <laughs> that you don't have to th- roll the dice. Exactly. And I think sometimes people don't like the fact that, you know, if, if their character does have a secondary attribute in certain whatever it is, dexterity or whatever it is, and they have that 18 base, and uh, especially at lower levels, they have difficulty... Um, accomplishing certain tasks. Uh, one thing I one thing I, I tend to see is um, sometimes CKs will um, they'll equalize the character level with the the challenge level, and they'll almost make it where whatever the character's level is, uh, they make the challenge level the same. And that's not really the point. I mean, as that's why you get to add your level. Um, you know, if if you're an eighth level character. Um, doing a task um, compared to a second level character, um, you should be getting that, uh, that additional advantage. You should be able to accomplish it. Um, and sometimes that's, that's where I see um, not as much flexibility um, on the part of CKs. Um, and it may just be um, a lack of experience. Uh, I'm not sure. I um, think some of that comes from this desire to, um, create the right amount of challenge. And it's it's not really an idea that's rooted in uh, reality. It's rooted in gamership and not uh, simulation. Right. So they wanted yeah. it to always be kind of like you have like a 25 to 50% chance of succeeding at something. And if they feel like if they go outside of those realms, if someone has a 75% chance of, of making this role if it's even that great of a chance and they've somehow robbed that person of a challenge but the heart of 
role-playing isn't the dice it's the choices you make so they're view they're looking at the challenge in the wrong place yes and um as we discussed earlier if they want it to be easier it's very simple to do simply change that challenge base from 12 18 to, to 9 15 or even 6 12 if you want it to be you know if you want to have that type of heroic setting um and if you want to have if you like rolling dice and you, you want your characters to roll more for uh, more mundane challenges, go for it. That's the whole purpose of CNC. Make the game the way that you want it to be. Well, and there's even the lowering of the the challenge base of 12 or 18 itself. I remember maybe if it was the fifth printing or, or some of the earlier printings at one point, I was looking through one, and in the beginning of the book, you know, it says about you can, uh, next, the castle keeper adds or subtracts the challenge level to the challenge class. And I remember there not being an example uh, in the back of any lowering of it, although it was referred to earlier on in the player's handbook. And I want to say maybe it was six printing. I kind of pointed that out to Steve, and they added in a section, which is a challenge class less than zero uh, that you might find on uh, maybe 164 uh, in your sixth and seventh printings of the player's handbook to kind of explain that if you had, you know, some task that you still needed to roll for, it's not something mundane, something uh, run of the mill, but it might be uh, easier for some reason or another, and you can lower that base just a bit. Probably not too much, because if you're lowering it too much, then it must be easy enough not to even have to roll. But that was something that was kind of an add-on paragraph or two with an example that came in some of the later players' handbooks. Uh, I'm wondering if maybe we should uh, look at a few examples of just kind of setting up the, the challenge base, the challenge levels, like uh, with strength. Uh, Mac, is there something you would, we were going to have a fighter or some other character use their strength, be it primary or secondary, to uh, do some sort of task. How, how would how would we want to set that up? Is it, we want to have somebody bust down a door or lift something? What if we have two wizards, and one has a, a strength prime and the other one does not, and they're trying to knock down your standard dungeon dungeon door? Well, there's your difference between the twelve eighteen, um, and let's say let's say the wizard with the the prime attribute and strength has a has a twelve strength. The wizard with the secondary attribute and strength actually has a sixteen. So the wizard with a secondary attribute with a sixteen strength is much stronger, uh, has a plus two bonus, uh, but he's working from an eighteen base because. Uh, honestly, he does not have that type of aptitude. Whereas, let's say the wizard that has the prime with the 12 strength, uh, he might not be exactly strong, but uh, perhaps he, perhaps he, his background is he grew up on a farm and he's used to doing physical labor. And he knows how to, despite his um, less than stellar strength, he knows how to best use it. So looking at the door... Uh, perhaps he's able to, uh, it may take him a little bit longer. Say it, he may stare at the door for three rounds to figure out the weaknesses of the door and how to utilize his strength or perhaps even use a crowbar. Um, and that's why he can open it as compared to the wizard with the 16 strength who has a secondary attribute. He just can't get the door down because he can't make the roll. Uh, to me, that's 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 more of, uh, of the uh, the main philosophy behind the the sieging and attribute check system. Uh, it allows for all types of characters, not just not the ones that just come to mind. Um, the most immediate, for example, um, the strong fighter. Does that make it, sense? Absolutely. And, and for those requesting kind of that specific example, let's say in the case of these wizards. And trying to knock down a standard door, we could say, if we're just going to call it standard, maybe we say it's just a 12 if you have a primary strength or an 18, which is the standard challenge base in the player's handbook. And then that uh, whatever level wizard, let's say third level wizard, and one of them's got a plus two strength modifier, you're just going to roll D20. You add that plus two strength modifier to it. And obviously the third level wizard or whatever would add his level to that. And then you're just trying to meet or beat the number. You could also say that that door is a little sturdier. It's not steel, but it's some harder wood, perhaps. And maybe you say it's still breakable with either that crowbar that Mac referenced or maybe with just knocking it down with fists if if you've got that kind of brute strength, perhaps. And you increase that 12 that we use for that standard door, perhaps. 
and say, I think maybe it's going to be a 15 or a 16 or a, a 13, whatever the case may be. And let's say you've got some flimsy door that, uh, you know, for people looking for those examples, once again, the flimsier door that's uh, not quite cardboard, but uh, somewhere between that and standard wood, you could go back to this uh, later added passage about the, uh, the challenge class less than zero, where they suggest you give the person's die roll a bonus, or you could just lower that either 12 or 18 target number to uh, let's say 10 or nine, provided you're not making it so simple that there's no need for the role. And, that, and that's kind of, you know, how it works. But we did have a lot of people that right. early on were asking about some of these examples, but yeah, you yeah. covered it great and gave even more insight than, than I would have. Well, let's, 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 let's go with those examples right there. So yeah. what you're talking about is a challenge level. So if you have a door that's say it's still shod and perhaps it has a, perhaps has an additional lock on the back of it, um, that's that you that the character cannot see. Um, uh, that's that's at this point. Let's just say the character has a prime attribute. Um, you might the the CK might set the challenge level at at five or six, right? Um, or as you said, Tyler, uh, the door is flimsy. Perhaps the door is actually dry rotted, but you can't tell that from just looking at it from as you approach it. Um, the CK could easily say that the challenge level is going to be negative three. Let's do some actual play examples of how the siege engine works during a game. We'll just uh, act them out real quick. Let's just do a couple of uh, actual play examples of how uh, this might go during actual gameplay. Tyler, your magic missile takes the last goblin in the chest. He falls dead and rolls down the stairway behind him. You guys follow his body to the landing of the stairs. And in front of you is a huge wooden door. Um, it's well made, but there's about an inch of water at the bottom of this landing, and the door is swollen shut. What would you guys like to do? Parker, can you take a shot at opening that door? This wound I got on my shoulders going to really inhibit me from trying to open it. All right. Well, puny Parker, after having uh, uh, successfully struck the goblin with a magic missile, I'm down here, and I've got to try and open this door. I guess that's what I'm going to do. And... Uh, and I rolled a 15. Wow. I um, have a, a fourth level wizard, so that's going to put it up to 19. And my strength uh, modifier granted me a plus one for a total of 20. Okay, Tyler, you put your shoulder into the door and you push with all your might. It groans just a little bit, but it doesn't open up. Move out of the way, Parker. Let me give it a shot. All right, will do. Okay, I also have a fourth level wizard with a 13 strength. However, my strength is a prime. Let's see what I can do. I rolled a 13 plus the four plus the one. That's an 18. Okay, Mac, you go over there and you push with all your might against the door. It groans again a little bit and you pop it open. Um, you see a long tunnel in front of you full of darkness and a lot of dripping water and the crawling noise of insects. I guess all those early mornings on the farm paid off, Parker. But you take <laughs> 1d4 points from your shoulder wound. <laughs> <laughs> Taking it too easy on him, Jesse. Come on. Know, yeah. <laughs> too easy. So on the castle keeper's side, the way I figured out if they succeeded or failed was I first took the um, challenge base, which is a 12 on max side and an 18 on tyler's side because if it's a prime it starts at 12 if it's a secondary it starts at 18 the door is ancient old and waterlogged so as a cast keeper i decided that's going to be a plus four to make the check to open that so for tyler to succeed he would need to get a 22 or higher to budge the door open and for Mac to succeed, he would need to get a 16 or higher. Yes, and I like that example because it shows Tyler rolled higher than I did, but because of the split between the prime and the secondary attributes between the characters, it shows the how much the primes play into the game and, uh, and your choice of what you want your primes to be uh, outside your class, of course, which are set. Um, can make some from real differentiation between characters no matter the class or the race 
But I sure took that goblin down, though, didn't I? Well, Absolutely. magic missile always hits. Yeah, time, I know, so. I know. Come on, don't don't steal my moment, Jesse. <laughs> you are in the back alleyway, and you see the shifty merchant from the other night setting up his shop. Okay, Magmodos makes his way across the dusty alleyway and sneaks up on the unsuspecting merchant um, at his stall. I'm going to sneak up, and I'm going to try to pick his uh, pocket. Okay. So uh, give me a die roll and uh, tell me your modifiers. Okay, I'm a fifth level rogue. I have a 13 dexterity. It's obviously a prime, so I get a plus one. So I'm going to be adding six to this roll. Ah, I rolled a five, so I got an 11. You're unable to pick the merchant's pocket, but fortunately he's so preoccupied about his daily routine that he doesn't notice the attempt. I slowly back myself back into the alleyway. Stand aside, Mac Muddles. It is I, Moore, the Destroyer. What, what is, what's Moore doing? He's going to go up there and he's going to try and uh, do what um, Mac Muddles had just attempted, and I think I can do it. What, what is... What are you wearing? Uh, full plate. So you're going to sneak up on the merchant in full plate armor? Yeah, I've got Dex as a prime, and I've got a plus one. You know, I've got at least somewhat of a chance. I am Craig and Moore the Destroyer, after all. Well, you're not uh, Craig or Moore the Sneaky, so uh, I don't think in full plate armor you'd manage to sneak up behind him. And even if you could, you don't know how to pick pockets. You don't know the first thing about picking pockets. Uh, you being a fighter and not a rogue. Well, I was kind of hoping you wouldn't notice that uh, that rule about maybe not being able to sneak up on him because it's not one of my class abilities, but I uh, guess you did. Can I just do it and not add my level in, or is you going to hold the armor thing against me? <laughs> I wouldn't let a thief... Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in full plate armor, sneak up on somebody. But yeah, um, so, um, so allowing uh, other classes to generate effects from other class abilities, such as uh, the picking of pockets, um, is something that some castle keepers allow and some castle keepers do not. And my take on it is uh, Castles and Crusades, as many fantasy role-playing games, is a game of archetypes. And the archetypes work best when they excel at their jobs and allow others to excel at what those archetypes excel at. But there are other ways to handle it. You know, I'm not necessarily as much of a hard ass as Carl is. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps in a situation I would let uh, Kragamore the Destroyer try to pick a pocket. Maybe if we were in an inn and the merchant was drunk, um, maybe Kragamore could slip a hand into the uh, merchant's pocket and take out his coin. I, I might let it happen. Yeah, and right. if he spots me, I'll just gut him. <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. And I right, a bastard I, sword after all. Who needs thief skills when you have a bastard sword? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I play my game like Carl does, and I would not allow the fire to do it. However, for those, just as Jesse suggests, that would like to allow that in certain situations... Uh, in the in the player's handbook in the siege engine explanation section, there is a a, a, a short write up for allowing that. And the typical suggestion is, if you do allow a, a class to attempt another class ability uh, for some one other some other class, that you if you do allow it, that you generally do not allow them to add their love. I will say uh, uh, these play examples don't necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the uh, people representing them. <laughs> However. Ex- Exactly. <laughs> Thank it you. Totally does for me. Yuck! I the worst, <laughs> the worst kind of of game. The, my nightmare game is the one where anybody can say any ridiculous thing, and they say I'm going to seduce the the T Rex, and if I roll a twenty, you can't tell me I didn't seduce that T Rex. <laughs> no, I don't like that kind of game. It's not. It's not for me. <laughs> Hey, we used to seduce people all the time in the old James back in <laughs> That was a skill. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, well, well, I'm in great mode with you, Carl. I don't I do not allow this to try another class's abilities at all, period. 
Uh, I agree with you too, but <laughs> <laughs> I know well, you, you. You were the guinea pig. <laughs> I'm the guinea pig. <laughs> now that's just Liam. that's just uh, uh, three people's opinions. Maybe four. I don't know how Tyler runs it, uh, but there's no wrong way to eat a Reese's and uh, Castles and Crusades. Certainly allows your play style to come to the forefront of the game easily and um uh, it gets out of the way of your play style unlike any other uh, rpg out there i feel absolutely i want to be very strong and say that not only does it allow you to do it it encourages you to do it cnc the way it's constructed it encourages you to take all the rules adapt them modify them the way that fits your game for your group so that they can enjoy it to the best. And if you want to change the 12, 18 to nine and 15 to 10 and 15, you want to allow a fighter to pick a pocket, whatever you like to do, go for it. Uh, there is just as Carl said, there's no one way to play the game. I will say yeah. this where I could, where I could see myself being a little lenient on this whole, uh, cross class, um, uh, skill use uh, distribution is within character concept and primary attribute selection. So if you were a fighter that chose dexterity as a prime to portray a character concept similar to, say, Robin Hood, I could see where this could come into play. I would probably... um, if it was using a a non uh, class ability, like if you were trying to pick a pocket, I probably wouldn't give you the twelve. I would give you the chance, and you would add your level. But I would give you the base eighteen as opposed to the base twelve, since it isn't a class skill. Yes, that's a good that's a good example. That's one of the third tier of ability, sort of within the primary system. Absolutely, that's one of the ways I kind of like to see C and C evolve. Not necessarily in the base rules, but in um, expansions and um, adventures or even campaign settings. I like to see people play around with um, the primes as they're assigned to classes. I'd also like to see more use of uh, people creating spells and um, magic items and things of that nature that really play around with the prime attribute system in ways that are not so obvious. Um, I think I think there's a lot of ground to be explored um, uh, in the rules, um, in fun ways, um, along oh, those yeah. lines. I've never considered that. Is there, is there a magic item in castles and crusades that gives you a, an additional prime? Uh, I'm not sure. That's, uh, that's, I, I know that's a dope idea. <laughs> yeah. I, I know. I know Steve's been playing around with that and I, some, there are, there are some ideas in the, in the adventurers backpack that play around with that, um, a little bit. Um, the current character that I'm playing, is is a high level ranger and it's really it's really it's at this point it's it's not even a ranger it's it's a class that is kind of developed that me and Steve have developed together that it has no has no counterpart but um, at this point my character's thirteenth level and he just gained a new ability and that ability is um, he is able to bestow upon another character uh, temporarily for um, a number of rounds equal to my level. It makes that character's attributes all prime attributes for one round per level, um, which, if you use in the right situation, can be a very powerful thing. Yeah, absolutely. And and th- these are just many examples things with these uh, magic items or with your own home relates to the siege engine. Uh, whether you're using abilities that are not from your class, you could just raise that difficulty. Uh, something that we. Uh, talked about outside of the podcast itself was uh, that you could even if you wanted to, I, I don't think it would work for me overall. Uh, you could even say, I want to change uh, when you're making saving throws against a, um, uh, a wizard or illusionist spells or, or cleric or druid for that matter. You could say instead of it, uh, the challenge level being uh, as in the rules, the caster level, you could change it to the level of the spell. I've heard some people do that. Not many, but some, uh, and that might work for you. There's so many things you can do that really won't really break the game. Uh, I've, I've said to people before, I think if you were to try and beef up the power level of the classes, if we're to get into this, just homebrewing in general, which is not what the overall topic is about. But, uh, mm. I think that would get a little more difficult if you were to say, okay, I want D six wizards and D eight clerics. And you kind of have to 
see about uh, increasing the hit points and armor class of some of the creatures as stated in the various monster and treasure books. But that that's once again, just one of the great things about CNC. There are so many things you can do where you're not breaking the game. And these are just some uh, prime examples right. of pun intended. Yeah. And you could even get uh, without even getting into home, let's say, just take that same idea, Tyler, that um, instead of homebrewing that you make a save against the level of the spell and not the caster level, you can make that into a magic item, say a magic item that's intended for fighters, some sort of helmet. And any fighter wearing that helmet makes saving throws against magic at the level of the spell and not the level of the caster. Um, that's a that's an easy way to bring that same idea into the game uh, without saying this is a homebrew rule. That makes sense. Stephen Chenault, if you're listening, this is for Adventurer's Backpack Two, <laughs> Electric Boogaloo, Ad- Adventurer's Knapsack, <laughs> Adventurer's <laughs> Fanny Pack. <laughs> that that is, I, I'm thinking a helmet is great. That's something you could put into. You know, if there were to be an ABP two, uh, just kind of like I thought uh, after the fact, after its release, pretty much that. Uh, having times for uh, uh, donning armor and removing armor uh, might be something that maybe CNC hasn't covered that could be covered in another book. So, Mac, we've heard a lot about the Siege Engine. I Honestly, I don't think I've ever heard why it's called the Siege Engine, though. Do you recall why you guys picked the name Siege Engine? Well, uh, there's, there's uh, flavor and there's marketing and is um legal reason so we needed to come up with something to market the 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 main mechanic that set it apart from the srd and what had come before it and steve wanted something that uh, we could create a logo for that made sense and for legal reasons uh, it needed to be something that could be trademarked um for um castles and crusades so that it could um, stand out, if you will. And again, I don't remember who came up with the actual term Siege Engine, but I do remember standing on my front porch, discussing it with Steve and Davis, and I think the, the name came about in less than 10 minutes, if I recall correctly. Um, obviously, Engine uh, makes sense because it's it's the core mechanic that makes the game run. And then we want something fantasy-flavored. Um, so Siege obviously just fit fit right in. Uh, Mac, you know, here we are at uh, 2018. Uh, Castles and Crusades debuted in 2004 with the little white box at those 300 signed and numbered, and then the other 700 and something that were out there in the market for a while. Not to mention uh, Troll Lord Games Legacy and some of those years that you were uh, even more heavily involved day to day as well with the D and D third edition product at that time. And you're, you're looking at 2018 now, and, and people are still playing Castles and Crusades. Uh, you guys are still working together there in Arkansas and, and uh, various other freelancers. Kind of give us a little overview of kind of how you feel about all that and, and, and what it's like kind of having uh, been a part of that and something that continues on today. Well, it's it's very humbling to me. Next year will be the 15th anniversary of CNC. And I mean, who would have ever thought back back in 98, 99, when me and Steve first started talking about forming what became Trollor Games, that uh, we would end up with a, a game that did last 15 years and uh, seems to have grown, grown in support and fans um, since it was created uh, back in 2004. At that time, as you know, I, I had left the company and uh, Steve and Davis allowed me to come back in and help them design CNC. Uh, I was really gung ho about it, really wanted to do it. And by their blessing, I was allowed to come back in and, um, allowed to kind of remain a part of the company without being part of the company ever since then. Uh, uh, Steve's always, uh, listened to me and, uh, allowed me to influence the rules and their development. And, uh, I'd like to thank him for that. And really, I think I've said this before. I mean, the the player's handbook should say the authors are David Chenault, myself, and Steve Chenault, uh, because there's there's a lot in there that, that Steve wrote that kind of binds the sections and the rules together. Uh, you know, me and Davis designed the rules, but there's a lot of flavor and uh, a meat there that that Steve uh, contributed. And uh, really, I wish he'd go ahead and add his name to 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 the authorship if that was possible. 
So again, it's humbling and uh, it's, it's just great to still be a part of it. Well, Mac, thank you for agreeing to be on the podcast with us tonight. It's been a great conversation and I think that people are going to be happy to hear from you. Thank you for your contribution to Castles and Crusades. I don't want to fanboy out or anything, but it is my favorite game. So thank you for everything that you've done so far. Well, I appreciate all the kind words from you guys. And as you know, I'm huge fans of this podcast. Thank you for me for allowing me to be on here. And uh, I look forward to uh, listening to all the upcoming episodes. Some games may change, but the Castles of Crusade Siege Engine remains the same. So I've, I've kind of mentioned this before, but never got to explain it. Tyler's kind of hard to edit, and I'll tell you why. If I look at Jesse's bar on my little sound editor, it'll be a bit of talking and a bit of talking and a bit of talking. If I look at mine, it'll be a bit of talking, a bit of talking. Anytime it's Tyler's, it is a straight line. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's, true. <laughs> it's yeah. just the exact same wavelength repeated. <laughs> Because back in radio, when I recorded that stuff on the computer, you'd have those, you know, the wavelengths essentially on the, uh, on each track, you know, and if it was some long dissertation or whatever, oh yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs>